I want every business owner to constantly be having to decide if I do this, I can't do that. Instead of just kind of like, how much is in my checking account balance? I guess I'll do it. You'll find that you feel more peace. And I don't mean that in some trite sense. I mean, legitimate peace. That thing, that bank account lies all the time. What's going on, guys? This is Passive Wealth Strategies for Busy Professionals. Today, our guest is Jesse Meacham from youneedabudget.com. Jesse is a successful entrepreneur helping people learn how to budget and manage their personal finances. And today, we talk about kind of all aspects of his business. We talk about why folks need a budget, what a budget really means, not just in the kind of boring spreadsheet way, but how to think about those things and how to make decisions related to our personal incomes and why everybody needs a budget. doesn't matter if you're a high-income busy professional or somebody living in the lower end of the income spectrum. You really need to manage your personal finances. As I mentioned previously, Jesse is a successful entrepreneur. So we talk about some of his entrepreneurship lessons as well, because I think there is a space that's not being discussed. There's the fire movement that talks about cutting our expenses, getting, you know, living at the bottom that we can possibly spend. And then there's the entrepreneurship movement where it's go, 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 do everything faster. And we need to bridge that gap and talk about how we can, as busy professionals, manage our personal finances, but also have these entrepreneurial ventures, whether it's passively investing in real estate or actively going and building a real estate portfolio. We need to manage those finances and have enough left over to go kick butt and be entrepreneurs. So we talk about that as well and some of Jesse's personal real estate investing experience. Great interview. He's a great guy to talk to. And again, very successful. He's helped a lot of people manage their personal finances. So very thrilled to talk with Jesse. For those of you who don't know, I'm your host, Taylor Lote. I'm a real estate investor, a real estate syndicator. I buy real estate with passive investors and split the return. Thrilled to bring this interview to you today. Without any further ado, here we go with Jesse Meacham from youneedabudget.com. Jesse, thank you for joining us today. Absolutely. Glad to be here. Thrilled to be talking with you. You've got a fantastic brand. Everybody, I think, in the FIRE community knows who you and your brand are. But for those out there who live under a rock and don't know about what you do, tell us about Jesse and about youneedabudget.com. I mean, there's not much about me, but as far as the business goes, I started in 2004 when I was still in college. And uh, my wife and I, we were newlyweds, broke, trying to get through school trying not to borrow money to finish school. And we had decided we wanted to have a baby. So all of these things kind of, there was a confluence of factors that created pretty good amount of scarcity financially for us. And I built a little spreadsheet that she and I were using to manage our finances. And it was doing well, despite you know our meager means. And I just had the idea, well, maybe other people would want this spreadsheet. It's useful to me. So we stuck it up online back in 2004 before phones and before a lot of stuff, <laughs> but we, we quickly realized it had legs. Well, quickly in about a year, we realized, oh, this thing's got a little bit of traction and it'll get us through school. But then I, I wanted to make it more, I just wanted to improve it. So we had actual software built and now it's, you know, it's a web app, Android, iOS. It's a, it's a whole methodology. And then we, you know, we pay the bills by selling software to implement it. Cool. So that's it in a, in a very short nutshell. But. I love it. You talk about teaching people to think about money differently. Yeah. What does that mean? I mean, we all have different conceptions of money in our head and there's the probably 
just like there's a standard American diet, there's a standard American money concept. What does that mean to you thinking about money differently? You know, a standard American concept, interesting. that's an interesting idea. I, I wonder if it means that there will always be more later. And that's not necessarily a correct assumption, but it is the operating assumption for a lot of people. Like, I'll deal with this later. I'll deal with this later. And so the way Americans manage money now is that they don't give a lot of thought to the future version of themselves. It's all about like the, the current me. We really try and flip everything on its head. And where people say, especially in investing and kind of trying to grow, you know, grow your wealth, everyone talks about this abundance mentality, you know, that there's enough for everyone. We teach people to actually try and reverse that, strange as it sounds. And we treat them to start to create scarcity in their finances where they butt up against having to decide, should I have this or this? Where most Americans are kind of like, I want that and that and that. We start to present people with this idea of, well, if you have A, you maybe can't have B. And these trade-offs are actually... That's the magic. And it's, it's, it's simple, but that's the magic for people. So it's really, we have a whole methodology, but really it's just around presenting people with trade-offs regularly that allow them to say, well, do I, do I want this or this? And they're considering the future and the present all at the same time. Interesting. So what is a typical trade-off that you think about? I mean, when you say this, what comes to mind for me is, do I want the BMW or do I want the nicer house? Right. Is that, am I on the right right track? Yeah. Yeah. That one's pretty easy because it's, uh, they're kind of like a little more, they're bigger ticket items, but I want to maybe illustrate it with something very small. So our first rule is basically to give every dollar a job. And that is this trade-off idea. It's zero based. So if you give one here, you can't necessarily give as much over there. The second rule is we want to want people to embrace their true expenses, meaning you look ahead to larger, less frequent expenses and you break them up into manageable monthly amounts. So a trade-off situation, and this sounds odd, but I, I'll say it this way to, for it to be maybe a little more instructive. You know, you say, hey, Jesse, let's go get sushi. And I say, where? And you say, oh, it's a fancy pants sushi place. And I'm like, oh, okay, that sounds fun. And then at that moment, I look at my budget and I see in my eating out category, I only have 15 bucks. And then I can look at all my other categories and I can say, well, I'll take from one to make sure I can go out to sushi with Taylor. So I might see, you know, I have a lot of kids. So I might go down and see like my Christmas category. And we're always funding Christmas every month. We just fund a little bit so we're ready in December. And now, and this is, it's Christmas and it's on purpose. And I have this cute little four-year-old girl that tugs on the heartstrings. So I could say, well, am I going to sushi with Taylor or am I going to take a toy from my, from little Faye, <laughs> right? And no one's actually doing that, but there are things like that. And I say that only because it's such a stark contrast to what is the norm where I think, oh, well, yeah, we'll go out because you asked. And then I don't really give a thought to the future. So in this instance, I'm weighing that. And I might say, oh, I'll catch up with the Christmas funding next month because I really want to go. That's cool. But the idea that people are sitting there saying, do I want this now? And I'm sacrificing that in the future is not what we're used to. Or I want that thing in the future so bad that I'm going to convince Taylor that we should do Little Caesars and, and split it, you know? And that's where we start to see people really make good financial decisions. They're not looking at how much is in their bank balance. They're looking at what they want that money to do compared to what they want this money to do. 
and everybody's, they're their own best financial advisor when you're presenting them with good information in context. Interesting. So I can see that, or I could feel that the, probably a lot of the pushback that you might get on this from some folks is, Hey, I make a lot of income. I, I have a lot of money coming in. I don't need to feel like I live at the, to put a word on a poverty level, but it sounds like you're saying exactly the opposite or, mm-hmm. or you're presenting it, like you said, presenting them with choices of paying for something else in the future or pay for, to use your example, sushi now. So how do you make that mindset shift with folks who are on the higher end of the income scale and don't, you know, it's not, they're not going to starve if they spend a little more today, but right. maybe they'll reti- have to retire a month later based on one decision today. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's a level of materiality, really, and income determines that materiality. Unfortunately, most high-income earners also behave in a way that has them still just as stressed as someone that's living on, I don't know, 40 grand or whatever. I've never been in extreme poverty. I've always had a fallback, even, even the kind of fallback that's like, hey, mom and dad, I never had to do this, but I knew I could have gosh, we, uh, we need a place to stay for three months. So I've never, I've never lived at a survival level, right? But above that, the behavior starts to look very similar. So it really is, when you're in a high income situation, it really is just a matter of assessing your threshold and saying, well, whether or not I spend $500 eating out or $800 eating out every single month just doesn't really move the needle for me. That, that's totally appropriate. What we want to make sure people are doing is saying, what do I really want my money to do, really? And then making sure that their money does that. And if they're content with, I'm gonna sock away you know, 20% to retirement, I like my job, I like everything, I like my pace, I'm hitting my goals, then I'd say, well, yeah, I'd leave well enough alone. But if people are saying, gosh, I feel like I need to be doing better, I want to be doing better, then we would look and say, well, where's your money going? Does that match up with your priorities? If it doesn't, just fix it. It's not about spending less. It's about spending guiltless. The budget just gives you permission to go to sushi every week. It doesn't, it doesn't browbeat you because you enjoy the experience. It's just a matter of saying, well, do you want it? Yes, well, then do it. But if you don't, my word, stop. Most of the time, we're just spending money reactively instead of proactively deciding this is meaningful to me like I have a killer wood shop at my house, killer. It's because I love it. I loved and it. You can't, you can't even get into the hobby without saying, okay, I'm going to put up some money, but I love the hobby. So I won't spend on all kinds of other things that someone would say, well, someone at your income level, that would be reasonable. You should do this or that. I won't do it because I want to buy a new table saw, right? It's not because I want to live in, you know, in some artificially frugal nature at all. Um, quite the opposite. I just want to make sure that my spending lines up with what I really love. Interesting. Interesting. Okay. So to go back to the sushi example, you know, that, that is being faced, you know, with a decision in the moment and we have to, if we want to move from sushi to little Caesars to continue with your example, we have to get comfortable saying that's not within my budget. Have you seen a lot of pushback on that or how can folks who are trying to be more budget conscious build that level of comfort with saying, no, that's not in my budget right now. Yeah. It's just, they just don't want it. That's it. They just don't want it that much. 
if you wanted it, you would move the money and do it. But you actually, in this instance, the budget isn't saying, no, you can't do that. You're just basically telling your money because you're the one that set the budget. I mean, our third rule is to change your mind, to roll with the punches. So if something else comes along and you get better information, then you go for it. If you're buying a house and you have all this stuff dialed in, you've, you've done your due diligence and you've got this investment lined up and you're saying, this looks good and you're about to close. And then you get a note mysteriously and it's like, look at the foundation one more time on the Northwest corner. You walk over there, you do a little more probing that you might've missed and you find that you have some massive disaster waiting to happen. Does that mean you still go through with the house? I mean, your plan was to purchase the house, right? Absolutely not. A coach makes adjustments when she sees, you know, the way the game's playing. It's like, oh, we're going to change this or that. So when we're saying we set our budget and then the budget gives us these limits, if you get good new information that tells you you should change it, you change it. But you have to recognize that this is all just your plan. The budget's not some separate thing, like separate from you, where once you decided as if you had some kind of a crystal ball, now you just can't deviate it all from it. It's you. It's your plan. So just recognize when you don't want to do sushi, when you do want to stay within that budget, it's just you saying, well, that just doesn't, that just doesn't get me going. I don't want to do that. And yeah, you might have friends that are like, who are you? What happened to the guy two weeks ago that you know, was buying rounds for everybody? Who knows? But you have to recognize, oh, well, I've changed. I'm different now. I'm, I'm a new creature, right? And at that point, just making sure that you're clear. I'm doing this because I want it. A budget is about attaining things. It's not about some kind of deprivation. Interesting. I like that. It's not about deprivation. It's about attaining things. So I'd like to learn more about your platform, especially in light of the other ones out there. I mean, there's, I use, personally, I use Mint. Mm -hmm. I tried personal capital didn't like it. And then one of their salespeople called me and then I really didn't like it. So sell us on, you need a budget as opposed to the other ones, or maybe you don't even want to sell us. You just want it to sell itself. Just tell us about it in light. I mean, honestly, if you can follow our four rules, like take one of our workshops, they're 25 minutes long and there isn't three seconds that are wasted. Like it's just there. We've done, we do about 150 a week of live online workshops. So you do that and you can kind of learn the thinking behind it. That's most important. And if you can use your own homegrown spreadsheet or you can use Mint to implement this way of thinking and it works, don't, don't change a thing. Like don't reinvent this just for churn in your own life. Mint is really good at giving you a whole picture. It's really good at telling you what happened. I just don't, it's just not very actionable. I mean, how many times have you logged into Mint and said, oh man, I, I ate out too much. Well, okay. Now what? Nothing, you know, so then it's like rinse and repeat. It's like, oh, I ate out too much. What does eating out too much even mean? Why not double what, you know, what you've been eating out and see what happens? Like, why is that? Why are you assuming that that's too much? What baseline are you using? So Mint just has you look backward and you can kind of see. It's like when the start of CSI or any of those crime dramas, like you have a corpse at the beginning of the show and then the whole show you're figuring out how the person die, right? Mint is that. Like you, you've, you've killed somebody and you got to figure out what happened. And YNAB is on the flip side, we're trying to prevent the whole thing from happening. It's like, no, no, no. We, we want you to be looking forward and changing your behavior. I mean, and we haven't even gotten into like, if you happen to be sharing finances with somebody, my word, you have to get on the same page with them. So you get two people marching in the same direction, lined up with priorities that are in sync with each other and with money that is tagging along like a, just an obedient child. 
then in that instance, you have this tranquility, this peace, not that you're making more money, not that you're spending a ton less, but money's lined up. The couple is lined up, man, it's awesome. And then you just let it roll. You know, you just, just keep the pace. Mint is not really about behavior change. And I don't want to sound ominous or anything, but they sell your data and they try and get you to sign up for more and more things that are financially detrimental. So there's a reason that Mint is, in my opinion, stagnant as far as a product goes. 10 years ago, they, uh, 12 years ago, they came out and I was like, whoa, this is good. And then it just kind of stagnated. And it's because they, they, they're not aligned with what the consumer actually needs. The consumer needs fewer credit cards, fewer loans, not to consolidate. And their business model is to head in the opposite direction. So I mean, they, I wish we had as many, many users as they do, but as far as impact on bottom lines of families, we crush it in comparison. I can see that. I, I definitely, they just recently did another UI redesign and I've been using Mint kind of since the beginning. I was a pretty early user. Yeah. So you're, you're familiar with the, with the original and how it's kind of. Yeah. They, I, I would agree that they haven't really added features over the, the life. I mean, they do pitch a lot of credit cards, a lot of ads on it. hundred yeah. percent. And with every redesign, it seems to get harder and harder to use, but yeah. I can definitely see your value proposition in light of what they do. Yeah. I mean, we charge 84 bucks a year and you might just say, well, for $84 a year, I can manage my money without seeing an ad. You know, maybe that's, maybe just that's worth it. I would hope that, well, it's not a hope. I mean, we, we see that validated with people that are, they're actually like, they're making better decisions. That's key. And it can be those small kind, like I won't get sushi. I mean, come on, that's not going to move the needle, but it starts small and you kind of flex these new muscles of like, oh, look who's in charge now, you know? And then at that point, uh, it gets to bigger and bigger things. And pre pretty soon people are restructuring their whole financial situation. Do we need a second car? Do we need this? Do we need that? We don't dictate any of that, but it just naturally comes about as people start to have to make these trade-offs. They see that they've been trading off for something that doesn't give them any value. They stop. It's it's pretty fun to watch it work. I like that. I mean, I, one of my problems with the fire movement, once I kind of started learning about it, at least from the, to go back to that scarcity mindset of it was there's a lot of focus on not having that one sushi meal, but right. exactly like you said, it's, that's not moving the, the needle. I mean, yeah. if it's one sushi meal a year with a friend that oh, you gosh, haven't seen in no. a year, then yeah. who cares about the money? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, you got to think bigger and st more structural and scarier. It's it's really easy to be like, oh yeah, I'm going to cut back on this, you know, fifty dollars a month on some little tiny rinky dink expense. It's another thing entirely to question where you live and how close you are to work and whether your transportation is ideal. That's the stuff that I like about the fire movement is having people kind of burn down all their assumptions and ask like these big questions because that's that's when someone's like, well, I can't send, you know, I can't save ten percent of my income and then. A year and a half later, after serious hustle and serious mental restructuring, they're now saving 60%. It, it, that's the kind of stuff that I love about it. It's just, it's so radical that it just forces you to at least entertain the idea of some of those things, which is, is beneficial. I really appreciate that. And I think you bring up this mentality, all these shifts that are going on. And I think one of the big things with the zeitgeist right now, if you will, if that's even the right word, is kind of this fascination with entrepreneurship. And I wanted to 
bring that up with you too, because, Mm -hmm. you know, you're an entrepreneur, a successful entrepreneur. And from my observation, knowing a lot of successful entrepreneurs, I think the entrepreneur mind mentality, what have you, is so different from the typical busy professional, not to kind of steal this concept from Gary Vaynerchuk, although I, I probably did, but you know, I'd like to get into some of the, some of the differences. If you went from a scarcity mindset, at least the way I think about a scarcity mindset with running your company, you might be less willing to hire a programmer and try to do it yourself, but ultimately not do as good a job or like right. try to build your own website, whatever. I don't know your skill set, yeah. but some of those things that are in making business decisions and seeing the value in that kind of that I'm, I'm interested in that juxtaposition between mm-hmm. deciding I want the wood shop, which is not probably bringing you any money. Not at and all. And I want a new, I want to implement a CTO in my business, right. which is going to bring me a lot of money. Like right. how do you like juggle those things in your mind? Yeah. I think it's a false dichotomy to say that you, that that scarcity mindset would mean that you wouldn't spend. Hmm. That when we introduce scarcity, we're saying, okay, for this budget or for this business, let's say you have, I don't know, 50 grand in a checking account. Normally, well, I have to make it 200 grand. Normally businesses or business owners, and I was one of them operating this way, they, they make their spending decisions. And that's uh, another word in your investing decisions. You hope that your spend actually gets you ROI. They make those outflow decisions based on how much is in their checking account. So they're just kind of looking at it and, and they're just like, do I feel comfortable with 200,000 in the checking account? Yes, I do. And then you get a bill from the IRS that says you owe 150,000. And suddenly you're like, do I feel comfortable with 200,000 in the bank account? No, I don't. Or do I feel comfortable spending 10 grand here if I have 200,000? Yes, I do. Do I feel comfortable if I only have 30,000? No, I don't. Why? Because payroll's coming up or whatever. So they have this one number, the balance in the account. That's like this magical, but totally, it's like it's a liar. That number is supposed to tell you how much you should spend, how much you should invest, whether the CTO is a good idea. And you're looking at this pile of money. So then what do we do next? We look to the future and we say, oh, if we get this CTO, that will mean that we'll bring in this much, this much, and this much. Well, at that point, you're just, you're just pretending. You don't know. You, you may have an assumption, a hypothesis. You may have you know, tried to question the assumptions and done some rigor there, but you still don't know. I would suggest that a business owner could take the 200 grand and we would do the same thing we do with someone that has $300 in their checking account personally. And I would say, okay, you have $200,000 in your account. What does this money need to do before more money will come in? And they'll say, well, we're going to close a deal actually in a week and it'll be for another 150 grand. And I'll say, stop. I don't care about that future money that doesn't exist yet until it hits the account. You cannot count it. So what does that money need to do? As soon as the business owner starts to allocate and say, well, actually, we're going to run payroll at 70 grand. That's going to go here. It's like, okay, comfortable with that. We've been doing that for a while. What about this? What about that? Well, you said you wanted to hire a CTO. How much would that cost? Let's say 10 grand a month. Well, let's, let's put some money into that CTO category. Pretend it's gone, right? And you just start having to move the money around and get a feel. And pretty soon, instead of looking at 200 grand and saying, I think this is okay, like finger in the wind. They're now saying, okay, I got 200 grand, 70 for payroll, 10 for this, 15 for a new sign. This needs to be repaired. Everything's got a job. And that business owner's like, man, I feel good. Then when new money comes in, 
You just repeat the same process. We do it with our business. That, that breaking up of the big pile of money is what unleashed me to actually start hiring. I was fearful of being wrong in my estimate of, well, gosh, is this enough to have in a checking account? I don't even know. And then I finally gave every dollar a job and saw I had this excess. And it was like, Jesse, you would be an idiot not to hire that second engineer or that third engineer. So the scarcity mindset is not about saying you can't do this, you can't do this. It's saying, here are the things you want to do. What is most important for your business? And flushing out the strategy that that money should be following. Too often as business owners, we just are like reacting. It's like, oh, this or that. It's like, no, no, no. What is your strategy? Is your money following along with what your strategy is supposed to be? Is that strategy paying off? Is there ROI? Then my word, double down. You know, let's get this, this thing going even faster. But I, I want every business owner to constantly be having to decide, if I do this, I can't do that. Instead of just kind of like, how much is in my checking account balance? I guess I'll do it. It's a totally different game, but you'll find that you feel more peace. And I don't mean that in some trite sense. I mean, legitimate peace, right? Not this like low level mental overhead that we experienced. You'll feel that. You'll also find, I think, that you are more aggressive, that you take more risks, that are more calculated, but you'll find like, oh man, I was leaving some risk that I would gladly take. I was leaving it on the table because I was so afraid of making a decision based solely on how much is in my bank account. And that thing, that bank account lies all the time. That was a long rant because you, you triggered me though. So it was, that was on you. <laughs> well, I mean, that was kind of my goal. I wanted your honest thoughts about that because I think I like the way that you, you laid that out. I think maybe I need to reevaluate my concept of scarcity mentality. Scarcity squeezes out priorities. Mm. Scare, like if you only had a hundred bucks to your name, period, period, your, your number one priority would be so painfully obvious. And that's what we're trying to do. The, the people that are best at this are those people that are living poverty level or below. I mean, they are so good at recognizing this is most important. It's when you get above that level and then well above that level where you never have to answer that hard question of, I have run out of money. What should I do next? But that's where the creativity comes. That's where this indomitable will appears. That's where the priorities just are almost on their own surface. So that's why we're doing the zero-based deal. That's why we have people say, if I go here, I can't go here. Because we want to know what really matters for them. And if we know that, then the money can start to follow. And they feel good about what's going on. Wow. I like that. I love it. Well, we talk a lot about real estate investing on the show, and yeah. this has not been a, a real estate related episode. We've been talking more about financial independence and budgeting topics, but I would be remiss if I didn't ask you if you incorporate real estate into your strategy at all. I do. So, I mean, why not have the business? That's where all of my risk is sitting right there. So if that thing blows up, that'd be a, a horrible, horrible hit. I use real estate on the personal side as a completely opposite approach where I take virtually, I mean, as little risk as one could possibly take. So um, my real estate does, I, I do townhomes, they're paid for, I have good tenants, and then I use a property manager. And it's like, if everything were just to blow up one day, you know, we have to restructure loads of stuff, but <laughs> we could live off of the real estate and regroup and have it as a platform to jump into something else. So 
I am a real estate investor, but I'm the most boring kind you could possibly find. So <laughs> boring real estate is good real estate. It's supposed to be yeah. boring. <laughs> All right. Well, right now we're going to take a quick break for our sponsor. All right, Jesse, I've got three questions. I ask every guest on the show. Are you ready? I, I think I'm ready. All right. I'm ready. I'm sure you're ready. First one, what is the best investment you ever made? Uh, easy answer would be my business because it's, it worked, but there are a thousand other people where it didn't work for any number of reasons. I would attribute some of mine working to luck. So I'm going to say the best investment I've ever made is in my relationship with my wife. Nice. And you mentioned earlier about having two people that are sharing a budget, sharing money on the same, being on the same page. And it sounds like yeah. you two certainly are. So that's fantastic. I mean, that's, that's the key. Like she, she, she checks me, she motivates me. She has killer instincts when I come and I'll bring her this issue and I'll like, I would have been something we discussed as executives for 30 minutes and then she'll get to like the essence of it in 30 seconds. <laughs> okay. She has good instincts. So yeah, that's, that's an investment that keeps paying off that relationship. Nice. I love it. On the other side of that, we had the best investment. Now we go to the worst investment. What is the worst investment you ever made? So then I should say like, oh, my first marriage, but she's my only marriage. So I couldn't <laughs> say that. That would, that would have been a nice symmetry in my answer. One of the worst investments I ever made was I hired the wrong guy to build our project early on, kind of a, a V3. And I didn't vet. I was too anxious to get a warm body. And I had inklings and I ignored them because it was like, oh, this has to start happening. A wrong fast hire is never going to be as good as a slow, correct hire. And I should have gone slower. And I, you know, I burned, I oh gosh, 80 grand plus a year of time on the phone and work. And uh, it was atrocious. The 80 grand wasn't, it doesn't feel that bad now, but at the time we had just bought a new home, per, you know, personal residence, our first house. And uh, we had no money for furniture, no money. Like that 80 grand would have gone a long ways towards furnishing, like buying a sofa. <laughs> and so it, it was brutal. I had to go to Julie, my wife, and, and be like, oh, we got to start over with this software. Like we, we, we scrapped it. And uh, to, you know, to her credit, she, she did never like hold that over. And I mean, my voice is echoing in the house. Uh, there's no furniture anywhere. So it was, it was tough. That, we could have used that 80 grand in so many different ways back then. That was, that was a tough one. But man, just to one caveat, you find the right person. I mean, that's a killer investment every single time. So be patient, get the right person. Nice. I love that. My favorite question here at the end of the show is what is the most important lesson that you've learned in business and investing? Oh man, most important lesson. This is going to sound so trite. I don't even know if I want to say it. So I, I spent a year working for a big accounting firm out of school and I worked 80 hours a week and I was doing, you know, YNAB on the side between like four and 5 a.m. And I was making more money from YNAB than I was working this 80 hour a week deal. And it took me so long to be confident in my ability to feed my little kids. I had two little boys at the time. Risks are not as big as we sometimes make them appear. So de-risk personally, get out of debt, get your relationships operational, you know, especially if you're, if you're married, sharing finances, make sure that's, that's on point, you know, get out of debt, don't take on personal risk. And then once you've solved those, those two, like where there, there's risk here, there's like 
existential risk almost, then all the other stuff we attempt, if we don't go back into the borrowing money phase of things, it's just not as risky. One more addendum to that, because I'm cheating, I'm just gonna keep adding more things, but one more addendum is, I think a really good pace for growth is the pace with which profits come in. So if you find yourself saying, I need to grow my real estate enterprise at double digit, you know, 20, 30% or whatever, but profits aren't feeding that growth rate, you may consider just growing at the rate of profits. It's this, it's organic, it's indicative of what you can handle, both mentally, skill-wise, and risk-wise. And so growth is such a, it's like its own sought-after thing, like this intangible, it's like, what is that? But really, I love the idea of growth. I think we're kind of wired to grow. We're wired, wired to expand, right? But profits are a really good indicator of how fast you can grow intellectually so you can handle it, and then financially from a risk standpoint. So I don't know. It's something I've, it, that's a new thought. So I don't have it totally dialed in for podcast readiness or, or anything, but you couldn't have thrust me into where I am now 10 years ago. I would have been, I would have been frozen in my tracks with the amount of money that needs to be allocated and, and handled. But when you're growing at the rate of profits that you're creating from the prior year, suddenly it's like, oh, okay, I can tackle this. It's just this nice incremental amount, not too much, not too little. Anyway, something to think about. Interesting. I like the sound of that. I'm going to have to think about that as well. I think it makes sense to me, but I'm going to, I'm going to think about that in my, in my own real estate business and and what that means to me, because I think that's roughly about where I've been performing anyway. So yeah. And so maybe it's just like, well, you don't have to try too hard. You don't have to try, you know, you aren't, you aren't relaxing. You aren't sitting back like, oh, I'm done. So you asked for the lesson learned and it's kind of like a lesson. I think I might be learning, but uh, we'll see. Well, I love that. Well, thank you for joining us today. I really appreciate you taking some time. If folks want to learn more about you, they want to get themselves a budget. Where can they get that? Where can they find you? Super easy. You need a budget.com regardless of income level, where you're, wherever you are at, we will take you, teach you and change the way you think about money. So you need a budget.com is where they can find everything we do. Nice. I love it. Well, thanks once again for joining us today. I really appreciate it. We had some folks tuning in on the Facebook live stream. We got a comment, awesome. great app from one of my friends. So really appreciate that. Awesome. So yeah. fun to fun to do the live stream to everybody out there thank you for tuning in if you're enjoying the show please leave us a rating and review on apple Podcasts. very much appreciated helps other people learn about the show if you know anyone who could use a little bit more passive wealth in their lives please share the show with them and bring them into the tribe thanks for tuning in once again hope you have a great day great rest of your week we'll talk to you on the next one bye-bye oh and one of my friends just uh downloaded the app there you go oh, sweet. So, there we go another user <laughs> take care guys